Well, today is election day. Everyone is running off to the polls to cast their vote for the president and for various political representatives and ballot measures. But at the Ayn Rand Institute, we thought this would be a good day to take a step back from all of the controversies about the current election and about the polls and the state-by-state -state vote tallying, and instead to take a breath and look at some of the more basic questions about the nature of America's political system and about political philosophy more generally. The right to vote is, of course, an important right held by American citizens, but there are many people who treat the right to vote as though it is the most important, the most fundamental thing in politics. They place a lot of significance on the idea of democracy and the importance of elections. Some are even saying that it's democracy itself that's at stake in this election, as though that is the crucial test of what makes for a just and a good government. There's a lot of confusion out there about this concept of democracy and about what kind of political system we should actually have in America. That's what we're going to discuss today. So welcome to New Ideal Live. This is the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. Today, we are discussing the topic, the consent of the governed. My name is Ben Baer. I'm a fellow and instructor at the Ayn Rand Institute. I'm shortly going to be joined by my colleague uh, at ARI, Keith Lockich. Keith, are you with me? Hey, Ben, how are you? Good. Happy election day. Hopefully a happy election Hopefully day. Hopefully happy election day. <laughs> yeah. So you, you, you started off saying, talking about that the fact that there's a lot of confusion about the concept of democracy. So why don't we start there? Because I think that's, that's a really important thing to hit right away. What, you know, what is, what does democracy really mean? Is America a democracy? Is there a sense in which we are, a sense in which we're not? What, let, let's, let's get some clarity on the concept of democracy. Yeah, there's a, I think there's a sense in which we are and there's a sense in which we're not. And it's really important to distinguish these two senses because it's a word democracy that gets thrown around with not a lot of attention to what it actually means. Uh, this is something that I wrote about in an article that we released last year on New Ideal. It was an article about socialism. Uh, why did it come up in an article about socialism? Well, because there are a lot of socialists who argue that what socialism actually is, is extending the concept of democracy from the realm of the, uh, the political to the realm of economics. And the thing is that if you understand the term in the original meaning democracy, there's a sense in which they're right about that. And that's part of the problem. Originally, democracy meant the system of unlimited majority rule. Uh, the system where, for instance, the citizens of Athens can vote about whether or not to rob Socrates of his rights and, and to execute him, where the majority can vote to take away the rights of the minority. That's the original meaning of the term. And insofar as you think socialism uh, also involves the oppression of individual rights, maybe that's part of the reason. But part of the problem is that democracy has also come to mean something else. It's come to mean elections uh, along with some kind of protection for individual rights. And it's in that sense that America is often called a democracy. If that's what democracy means, then, uh, then it's true that we're a democracy. But I would argue at least that the older sense of the term uh, unlimited majority rule is it's the original meaning and it's a more precise meaning. I mean, if you look at the roots, democracy from Greek means rule by the people. And 
I mean, I do think that, and we'll talk more about this today, I do think that elections are actually a very important thing to have, that, that they're a crucial means to the protection of individual rights, but that's only in the context of a system where individual rights are protected as an absolute, where the majority can't vote to take rights away. So in the sense uh, that uh, democracy means unlimited majority rule, we're not a democracy and we shouldn't be a democracy. So let's let's develop that a little more because I mean an objection that people could raise if you look at the founding documents of this country if you look at the declaration of independence it says that governments derive their just powers from the consent of the governed this is the title of our our podcast today so doesn't that imply if it's if the consent of the governed is the basis for governmental authority uh, doesn't that imply that there is a sort of democratic, you know, that the majority rule or, or democracy is the basis for government. And, or, or is that a misunderstanding of the idea of the consent of the governed? Yeah, so one thing that's important to understand here when interpreting that line in the Declaration of Independence is that it's really hard to think that what the founders had in mind by consent of the governed is anything like unlimited majority rule sense of democracy. There's lots of reasons for this. I mean, one of the reasons is that the Declaration of Independence is one of the most, uh, it's, it's a paradigmatic expression of uh, the desire to respect and protect individual rights against tyranny of all forms, including tyranny of the majority. And the founders were students of history They'd studied the different polities and governments of the past, including ancient Athens. They knew what kind of tyranny could result from unlimited majority rule. And if you read what the founders wrote about this, for instance, if you read James Madison, especially his Federalist Papers, uh, number 10 in particular, you'll see there's, there's, they're setting up the Constitution with the express purpose of not having uh, a unlimited majority rule. They set it up with a set of checks and balances to make sure that that kind of system can't arise. Uh, they are setting up a system of representative government. We'll talk more about what that means by contrast a little bit later. But I mean, if you also look at the, the wider context of the Declaration of Independence, you see that the founder's chief concern isn't that the king isn't elected or that they can't uh, have direct referenda on all of the policies. Uh, their concern is that the, the king has enacted various unjust policies that violate their rights, policies that the colonists didn't consent to. Um, so they, they then, uh, they were interested in, policies that respected their liberties. They were objecting to the fact that the king was violating their liberties and that he was doing so without uh, any yeah. kind of representation from them. It's taxation without representation is, is the problem. Yeah. So, so, so the word just in that clause, when they say derive their just powers from the consent of the government, there's, there's a lot of weight that's being carried by that term that distinguishes what the founders meant by consent of the governed from the idea of unlimited majority rule. So, so okay, so let's let's develop this a little further then. So if, the, if consent of the governed does not mean that government's authority is based on like the arbitrary whim of a majority, 
what does it mean? Now, I know that Ayn Rand had a definite view, uh, a definite understanding of what the founders meant by the consent of the governed. So what is that view? Where does she express her, that, her perspective on what the founders meant by consent of the governed? What does she mean by that? And there's a number of places where this comes up in her writing and probably the clearest place where it's, I think, where she summarizes the issue uh, in a pithy way is in her 1963 essay, The Nature of Government. Uh, and she gives basically her gloss directly on what it means. She says, consent of the government means that the government is not the ruler, but the servant or the agent of the citizens. It means that the government as such has no rights except the rights delegated to it by the citizens for a specific purpose. That's, that was a quotation from the nature of government. So notice there's nothing in there about uh, majority rule. It is the case that the government is our servant uh, and that it, uh, we delegate rights to it for a specific purpose. That purpose then is also pretty important. It's what's going to determine, as you mentioned, whether its powers are just, whether the government's powers are just. And the way that I think about this and the way I understand what she's saying at least is the reason that this is something is worth calling this consent of the governed is because when government is our servant and not our ruler, and when it is abiding by its purpose of protecting our rights, then its whole function is derived from the idea of protecting and respecting our consent. So in, when it protects our rights, it is protecting our ability to interact with our fellow citizens on the basis of nothing but voluntary consent. So criminals, invaders aren't able to invade our lives and do things that we don't consent to if the government is there to protect us from criminals and invaders. And furthermore, if the government restricts itself to that function and it doesn't do anything else that ends up violating our rights, uh, say by uh, taxing us with, without our consent, then it's also respecting our consent as well. It's not doing anything against our will. And that's in stark contrast to the idea of ma unlimited majority rule, where, as we discussed before, if a majority can vote to oppress or to violate the rights of the minority, well, then obviously the minority's consent is not being respected. There's another place in Ayn Rand's work where she commented on this issue. Uh, there was a workshop that was done in the late 60s. Um, a lot of people are familiar with it as the workshop where uh, the appendix to introduction to objectivist epistemology was taken from. They also talked about ethics and politics and excerpts from this workshop were published in Jonathan Honig's book, A New Textbook on Americanism. And someone asked Ayn Rand about this issue of the consent of the governed and uh, whether it's the basis for political authority or whether something else is. And here's what she said. Uh, here's part of what she said. She said, quote, what is necessary for a government to be legitimate, a principle to justify it. The mere fact of being chosen or elected isn't sufficient because if it were sufficient, that's merely whim worship. Merely the fact that a number of people in a given geographical area wanted this government is no more valid than justifying an individual's action on the ground that he wanted it. Uh, so yeah, if, if you put a majority, if you understand consent of the governed to mean a majority rule where the majority can do whatever it wants to the minority, uh, that's, she's saying, this is like saying, well, whatever you want to do is okay. And she's saying that that's not okay, especially because it's violating the consent of that minority. Yeah. I thought, let me just jump in here because I, sure. I thought it was interesting. I read the excerpt from the workshop that you talked about and I, and I reread the nature of government uh, recently. 
And what's interesting is that in the article, The Nature of Government, she explicitly says, she says, what is the basis of government authority? It's quote, the consent of the governed as the founders said. And in the workshop she's asked, is the quote, the consent of the governed the basis for government authority? And the first part of her answer is no. And what, and, and what, she's, doing, what she's doing in the workshop is she says, it, you know, if, if by consent of the governed, you mean that a majority can just choose any form of government that it wants, whether it violates rights or protect rights, and, and, and that that somehow gives, gives that social system, that government system, legitimate authority. No, that is not the case. What's required for there to be a legitimate, for, for government to have a legitimate authority is a moral principle. And that's the, the quote that you just um, explained. For a government to be legitimate, it has to be justified by a moral principle. And that moral principle is, well, is, is the protection of individual rights. Um, and what's interesting and, about this discussion yeah. is that she's not just grafting like her objectivist philosophy onto the founders. She says, if you read them carefully, you'll see this is actually what they're talking about. She says, if you look at the context of the line about the consent of the governed, it comes right after the founder's statement about what the function of government is. To secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. So the idea here, I think, is that only these, only just powers can be consented to, uh, and it's securing those rights, which respects all of our consent, that uh, is government's primary function in the first place. Right. And, and what makes them just is that they are the um, expression of a moral principle. Uh, the, the principle of rights. Yeah, in, in other contexts, she talks about, she, she's, she um, expresses admiration for the, the intellectual precision, particularly of the Declaration of Independence. She, she talks about it in the context of, of um, the precision of talking about the pursuit of happiness as opposed to you know, having a right to happiness or something like that, but right to the pursuit of happiness, which isn't the guarantee of happiness. Um, but, I, but I think uh, it's worth highlighting that here because that said, you know, to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Every single word carries meaning in that sentence, and it's very, very precise. And and I think her analysis of what they're doing and of what Jefferson is doing in that document, um, you know, really explains and clarifies exact the exact meaning of what they were achieving with this. And so. I think it's before we move on. I think it's worth saying a little bit about if, if the if the legitimate basis for government authority is the protection of individual rights. What does that mean in practice? How what what is it that threatens individual rights? How is it that individual rights can be violated? Which so because that's what um, gives rise to the functions of government and the nature of government. Why? It's why we need government in the first place. So, what is the what are the what are the threats to individual right that government needs to protect us from? Well, the basic answer is it, it protects us from the use of force, and that was the connection, of course, to consent because it's it's when you're doing something against somebody's will that they're then uh, not consenting to what you're doing to them. And one of the interesting things uh, about the workshop excerpt that we talked about a moment ago is that in the same context where she's saying, well, this is what consent of the governed is, and this is what it isn't, and what it is is about protecting 
rights, which means protecting people from force. She also talks about how one of the important roles of government is to define exactly what constitutes force. And she, even in this passage, she's talking about government needs to show that, I mean, there's direct forms of force, like, you know, somebody punches you in the face or they threaten you, uh, threaten to punch you, or they engage in fraud. Uh, she says government is needed to define that fraud counts as a form of force because that's an indirect way of violating someone's consent. You falsely misrepresent the goods that you're going to deliver to somebody and they give you money and then they get something that they didn't actually consent to. And uh, that's just the beginning. I mean, you can have a further conversation about uh, government's role in defining property rights, what kind of things you can have property in. All of these are ways in which government uh, helps us mutually coexist with each other, where we know what the boundaries around each of our lives are, so that as long as we stick to those boundaries, we are not intruding on someone else's boundary against their will, against their consent. That's what rights do. Governments uh, exist to protect rights, which are these spheres of protection around our own lives, which enable us to live through mutual consent. So in effect, somebody who, you know, sort of gives their consent, what they're doing is they're, they're agreeing to live in a, in a, in a, under a system where the government has the power to enforce these rules of conduct and, and uh, has the power to kind of ban the use of force and, and expect of each individual that they won't initiate force against their fellow citizens. So that's all very well for rational people like us who don't want to use force against other people or, or uh, you know, recognize the need for government and, it's, and, and it's for it to have these powers and so on. But what if, what about dissenters? You know, what if somebody just, for whatever reason, doesn't like the idea of government, uh, they just don't agree with government set up this way, then what? Yeah, and, and there are people, there are anarchists out there who will say, for instance, that, you know, I didn't consent to this government, uh, even if it is set up in the way that we just described. And so therefore, how can even, how can such a government, especially one where it's got the monopoly of force over a geographical area, how can that be consistent with consent of the governed? And in that same workshop uh, in the late 60s, Rand has some very interesting things to say about this, which are consonant with uh, other things she said about the problems with anarchism. Uh, she, she emphasizes, look, if you have a government that's set up in a way that its sole purpose is to protect individual rights, its sole purpose is to respect these spheres of protection, uh, which if you intrude into, you're then violating someone's consent. If you're complaining about that kind of system, if you don't consent to that kind of system, you really don't have anything to complain about. A government that's protecting rights, including your rights, isn't doing anything against your wishes. Uh, it might, that is unless what you are wishing is to actually have other people's rights violated. So it might be, you might be dissenting to the idea of a government that protects consent, uh, but then that's a kind of self undercutting idea. And, and she even, uh, she says something I think very, very insightful about this. She says, did you notice that even basically people who decide to rebel against the government, even their consent is respected? She says, if, if a man says, I don't believe in respecting rights, I want to violate them. The answer of the proper government is, go ahead and we will answer in kind. And they don't even punish him until he has committed an act, but when he has violated somebody's rights acting on his premises. 
So you want to act by force very well, that's your choice. We will act by force only toward you because that was your choice. Uh, and I think this is the basic idea that she's getting at uh, earlier in that same essay, The Nature of Government that I mentioned before, where after having said what consent of the governed really means is government is the servant and not the ruler, she says, quote, there's only one basic principle to which an individual must consent if he wishes to live in a free civilized society, the principle of renouncing the use of force and delegating to the government his right of physical self-defense for the purpose of orderly, objective, legally defined uh, enforcement. So, um, I mean, what I'm, what I'm hearing and what you're saying is that what's important is not just the banishment of force from society. Part of what the government accomplishes is, is the banishment of whim from society. And that the, because it, it's part of what she's saying here is that the, that we have, we, we have a right to self-defense. You know, our right to life gives us a right to self-defense. But in a, in, in a social context, we delegate that right to the government so that it can be administered and executed in an objective, orderly way, not subject to the arbitrary decisions or whims of any particular individual. So it's really, it's a way of, of, of um, making social interactions subject to objective rules and laws and principles. Is that accurate? Yes. And this isn't just icing on the cake. It's, it's key to the whole issue of consent. She thinks that making these things objective is necessary for people to live and coexist in a society of mutual consent. Uh, and there's a lot that we could say about this, but to, to keep it short, uh, you might know that somebody stole your wallet if you saw them do it. And then on that basis, believe it would be just for you to go and take it back from them. But if the rest of society doesn't know what you know, if they didn't see what you saw, and then they see you going to take your wallet back, they may well think this person is stealing a wallet. And so you need to be able to demonstrate to the society objectively that you are not threatening them, that you have a just claim on that wallet. And that's what courts are for. That's, that's what a justice system is for, so that you can demonstrate your claim so that you're not then menacing other people's rights by violating the peace and going and taking back what may have actually been yours, but other people don't know that. And when you act without allowing people to know that, you're, you're menacing their own peace and their own freedom. So the objectivity that you just described, it's not some additional thing. It's, it's part of the whole equation of what it means for a society to function by mutual consent. So, so the whole apparatus of, of you know, police and courtroom procedure and, and the need for objective evidence and you know, the, the, all, 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 the, all the things that go along with the criminal justice system and the court system and all, all of that is, is part of the requirements of keeping, uh, of making um, these kinds of interactions and these kinds of conflicts handled in an objective way. Yeah, and if you object to that, you can you can do that. But then, if the way that you object to it is by say starting up your own militia, which maybe you think is necessary to protect your rights, but it's actually menacing other people's rights, then the government has the right to put you down. That is, unless what we're talking about is something like the situation that the founders were in, right? Because 
Uh, and it's, so I think it's not an accident that there's this language of consent to the governed in what is basically a revolutionary document. They're saying, right. we are going to take up arms. We are going to start a militia and start a new government to replace the one that we think is unjust. They're not saying we object to the very idea of a monopoly on force. They're saying we object to this particular king who has violated and abrogated our rights through a long train of abuses and usurpations. Right. So again, there's that, that word just is carrying all the weight in that clause there, that, it, that this is a situation where the government is not, um, does not have legitimate authority because it's violated this basic principle of justice that, that uh, a proper government needs to be based on in order to have legitimate authority. I should just mention this as, as an anecdote, uh, the king gets a lot of blame in the Declaration of Independence, but most of these measures that the colonists were objecting to were actually passed by parliament, uh, which is further to the point that you can have majority tyranny and that this is part of the thing that the founders were objecting to. Okay, so, um, okay, so we have, we understand that, that legitimate authority from government for, for government is based on, uh, you know, the government derives its just powers from the consent of the governed insofar as it's based on the principle of individual rights. Um, so, so the basic function of government is to protect individual rights by banishing force from society. And, and it's not the case that you can just set up any kind of society you want and vote you know, to have any kind of you know, majority rules, et cetera. So then how do elections fit into this system? What, is, what does it mean to say that we have representative government and what is the role, what is the importance of elections and why, you know, why is it so important that everybody go out and cast their ballot today? Yeah, so nothing that we've said so far about why we are not and should not be a democracy should be construed to be understood as meaning we shouldn't have elections. They're, they're still really important. They're just not the essence. And I think Ayn Rand does a pretty good job articulating the precise role of elections uh, in her essay, Representation Without Authorization, which is a, a, a riff on taxation without representation. She, uh, again, at the very beginning of that article, uh, talks about the importance of the consent of the governed, but here's how she relates it to the issue of elections, the actual relation to the issue of elections in her view. She says, the theory of representative government rests on the principle that man is a rational being. Politically, this principle is implemented by a man's right to choose his own agents, that is, those whom he authorizes to represent him in the government of his country. To represent him in this context means to represent his views in terms of political principles. Thus, the government of a free country derives, quote, its just powers from the consent of the governed. So the way that I interpret this is what she's saying is voting is about deciding who's going to govern you. It's, it's not about deciding the basic principle on which anybody can govern. So you should be able to choose who your agents for protecting your rights are going to be. That doesn't mean that you can choose to make them a tyrant uh, and to violate somebody's rights and to radically shift the pro proper purpose of a government. Uh, this is why I think later on in that same essay, she says, this means that voting is a derivative, not a fundamental right. It's derived from the right to life as a political implementation of the requirements of a rational being survival. So in other words, uh, the fundamental right is the right to be free 
to pursue your own life and happiness, uh, to exercise the liberty to acquire the property that you need to uh, live a flourishing life. Uh, but a right to vote derives from this fundamental in the sense that uh, voting is a useful check against the potential tyranny of a government. So if a, if a political figure who has uh, taken office shows that uh, he has a tendency to try to violate people's rights, if he, if he has tyrannical ambitions, you can vote him out of office to the point where uh, to stop him from getting to that point. Yeah, and I, I think what an, an important aspect of this to emphasize is that what political representation means, and this is, this is part of the sentence that you just quoted, but part of what political representation means is representation in terms of political principles. So the ideal you know, electoral context is politicians actually enunciate political principles and, they, and their platform you know, is, is an expression of, um, here are the policies that I want to enact as an application of certain political principles. And then what the voters are choosing is uh, one set of principles or another and, and the policies that follow from those principles. As opposed to, you know, I think, I don't think that's the way people think about politics at all today. When, when people think about representative government, um, they really think about people being represented uh, as a group. You know, you're, you're choosing representatives from the same race or gender or economic class and, um, and, and what it means to be represented is to be represented by somebody from, you know, some group that shares the same unchosen characteristics. So again, coming back to the idea of consent, the, the, the idea of representative government, the, it, it uh, comes from the idea that you are, you are thinking about the principles, the choices between political principles that are being offered to you and you're choosing which principles you agree with and it's on that basis that you're electing representatives and you're, what you're consenting to, when politicians say they have a mandate to enact their policies, what gives them the mandate is that the voters have chosen the principles that they think should be enacted and then the, and the policies that follow from those principles. It's not just that you happen to be from the same um, you know, racial group or, or gender group or economic group that somehow gives you a mandate to act for all, all the people who you allegedly represent. I think this is an important point that she makes in this article, Representation Without Authorization. Yeah, and, and, and one more word on that, which is that you might think, well, if the point, if the overall point that she's making is that you shouldn't be able to vote other people's rights away and to vote away the fundamental principle that government exists to protect our rights, then what would it mean to say, well, you still uh, vote for the agents who represent your principles where there's a, the other side has different principles, wouldn't that mean maybe you could vote to change the principle of government? I think what she has in mind there is a lower level principles than something like the basic purpose of government. Right. And, and this is in fact, the way that the parties initially differentiated themselves at the founding of America. So you had, you know, one party that said, uh, it, the best way to protect our rights is to have a strongly centralized government. And the other party said, no, the best way to protect our rights is to have a more federalist system where the states 
uh, are invested with more power to protect rights. And there's and, and there's a legitimate question there of what, you know, practically speaking, is the best way to protect our rights. And people will dis disagree, even within uh, the same party, they'll disagree about what the best policies are uh, to protect our rights. And so you can agree to the fundamental principle that governments exist to protect rights while still having disagreement about lower level principles about what's the best way to accomplish that. And since people disagree on these things, we need to have a peaceful way of settling these disagreements. And the way to do that is to have elections, to you know have your representatives uh, run the government for a while and see how well they do using their policies and lower level principles. Yeah. So how does this, uh, how does this relate back to today? Uh, the trouble is that the elections that we are faced with today, and it's not just today, 2020, it's been this way for many years and many cycles of presidential and other uh, congressional elections. We're not just picking sides between different agents who have different views about how to best protect our rights. Both of the major parties are actively hostile to individual rights. Both want to enact policies that in one way or another uh, are going to abridge our rights. And so voting for one party or another amounts to voting for some kind of mob rule or another. The only question is which, is the, which of the mobs is going to rule and therefore which uh, individuals are going to have their rights violated. Now, if you take a step back from that, I think, the situation we find ourselves in today, this is all the more a reason that it's important that voting not be seen as simply a channel for majority rule, as simply a way to get your gang in charge. And so, you know, people are probably going to ask us when they submit questions shortly, and I will remind people, you should be asking, you should be submitting questions. If you're in Zoom, go to the Q&A box, hit, the, hit that button or otherwise, if you're watching on YouTube, Super Chat's the best way to do it. They're probably going to ask us questions about, well, how do you decide how to vote today? And of course, we're not here to discuss the particulars of this election and we don't take a position on elections at the Ayn Rand Institute. Uh, but as a matter of principle, given the fact that we're confronted basically by two gangs, each of which wanna have their own version of mob rule, and that's what you're picking between your voting when you're voting. I mean, the best I think you can do is to decide, well, which of these gangs is going to do the least harm, which is going to make the collapse of gang rules at least slightly more likely for whatever reason. Or if you decide, and I think there's often good reason to decide this, that you just can't decide that one of them is less bad than the other, you can wash your hands of the whole thing and abstain and, and, and work for a, a better culture where someday there might be a better choice. Yeah, so on that note, I think it's worth asking, um, you know, what can we do to try to change? So, so we're in a situation where electoral politics is pretty depressing. And what we get during election season is just mean empty slogans and meaningless generalities. You know, uh, I, just, I, I just remember when Obama came out with his, you know, change you can believe in. What the hell does that even, you know, and uh, it's just the, there's so. And what does it mean to make America great? What does it mean to make America great? Great what, in what way? What is America? Yeah. Um, so uh, 
how do we change the situation that we're in? How do we, how do we, so is it, is, is it, is, is it through politics? Is it by being active in politics that we want to try to move people in the direction of um, enunciating principles as opposed to mouthing uh, empty generalities? You know, how do we change this? I, she, Ayn Rand has a very interesting, um, very short article is from when she was writing a column for the LA Times in the early 60s. It's called The Season of Platitudes. And she's saying, you know, the, for the next few weeks, there'll be no political discussions in America. We've entered the season of platitudes, an election campaign. <laughs> you know, so so she, it's a, it's a, she's expressing this idea that, well, that electoral politics today is, 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 is a kind of a joke. Uh, and we're so far from the ideal that we just described of, of having politicians express political principles as to how individual rights can be protected. And that's what voters are choosing between. So, you know, um, how do we get, how do we try to move, move in the direction of the right kind of politics? Yeah, so I mean, one thing that strikes me about that uh, the passage you just read is that it, it almost makes me feel nostalgic for the days when it was only a season of platitudes as opposed <laughs> to a season of childish name calling and uh, crazy uh, conspiracy theories, which is which it's like it's a, it's gone a lot lower than even when it was in the 60s uh, below the level of even pseudo intellectual discussion because platitudes are pseudo intellectual principles. And the, and it's even a platitude is even still something that you aspire to uh, that it's, it sounds kind of positive. Uh, our politics today is so motivated around hating the other side uh, and, and then sticking with your gang and your tribe because they oppose the side that you hate more. And so how do you, how do you work to change a system like that? Uh, well, there's lots to say, and that we've 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 devoted considerable resources at the Ayn Rand Institute to analyzing and diagnosing and trying to propose an alternative to the tribalism that we see in our political system today. Uh, and uh, at the end of the day, the alternative is try to be an individual, independent thinker who uh, tries to figure out the truth for yourself rather than just sticking to the set of talking points that your gang is giving you about how the other gang is uh, so awful. Um, I mean, I think that at the bottom of that even is, is, is being motivated by love rather than by fear, love of what's actually good in life and not just uh, being afraid and hating uh, the enemies that you think are trying to destroy the world. Yeah. They're out there, but you can't fight them without knowing what the truth is and what's valuable. Yeah, and that, and that ultimately a better electorate on, will only come from a better culture and a better culture will only come from if there's a, a better there's a rational philosophy that dominates the culture. So, I mean, this is why Rand always stressed in all of her writings that the crucial battle that the world faces today is, is a philosophical battle to spread rational ideas. I mean, in particular, in her view, to, that spreading objectivism as the basis for a rational culture is, is the most important thing and, and is a necessary precondition for 
improving politics, for having any kind of uh, hope to have a better politics, because politics uh, rests on more basic premise. I mean, all the things that we were talking about today, about the nature of the consent of the governed and what the nature of government is, all of it rested on a certain moral perspective. Um, and and even deeper, we talked, you know, we the, the issue of the need for objective rules of evidence and enforcement and legal procedures and all this. So um, even more fundamentally, there's a whole epistemology um, underlying um, the, the kinds of principles that she's advocating in, in politics. And you can't get there unless you have a better culture that uh, in which in which these more fundamental principles are understood and, and respected and that this is what the electorate wants. Um, so, you know, I, I think um, coming back to the idea that for her, for Ayn Rand, you know, the most fundamental battle is the, is the philosophical battle for sort of the soul of the culture. I think there's a lot of truth in the old saying that you get the leaders you deserve. A culture gets the leaders it deserves. Uh, they're, the, the leaders aren't the ones setting the trends. They're, they're the, uh, the weather vanes who are simply following the trends. And so the trends are set within the culture by the cultural leaders and then the people who listen to them. And that's yeah, part of the big part of the reason why at the Ayn Rand Institute, we are primarily focused on education uh, about philosophy, about the culture, not just on uh, political elections. Yeah. So I think we should uh, maybe transition now to some, some Q&A. Yeah. Uh, and I, there's a, some good ones I see in Zoom. I'll just remind people again. We're... By, we, got, we had a super chat donation. There wasn't yes. a question behind it, but let's start by uh, thanking our donor uh, in the super chat. We really appreciate that. Um, yeah, and if you're, if you're watching on, on YouTube, uh, that's another good place to, to, to list your question as well. So, the, so we actually got this question fairly early in the discussion about what is the difference between the consent of the governed and the idea of the social contract. Which this is, is a really good question. Yeah. Okay. Um, because the social contract is this idea in, in uh, political philosophy that, that often gets equated with consent of the governed. Uh, just in the same way as democracy is, I think, wrongly equated with the consent of the governed. Uh, I think that in the case of uh, the social contract, there's a little bit more plausibility to it, but it still has some serious limitations. You, this is an idea you see in John Locke, uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Uh, to a certain extent, you see it in Kant uh, and, of course, in Thomas Hobbes. It's the idea that you can, you can decide what a just government consists in. You can decide whether or not a government is living up to its proper purposes. If you can identify uh, what the, what, what your government, the basis on which your government was originally founded or would have been founded if people had gotten together to set up a government coming out of a state of nature. And then the social contract is the agreement that they that they agreed to when they formed this new government out of a state of nature. Now, of course, historically speaking, there never was such a thing. There was never a case where a bunch of people who were not even living in a society uh, freely of their own will got together at some convention in the woods and said, let's sign up a, 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 a document that we all agree to uh, that will then govern our society uh, in perpetuity. This, and, and I think most of the 
social contract theorists realized that there was never any such social contract. So they're thinking of it as a kind of hypothetical device. What would our uh, founders have agreed to? Um, and well, I mean, there's a certain utility to thinking about what they would have agreed to uh, if you already know what the basic principles that should uh, define our society and that a government should be dedicated to protecting are you can then say, oh, well, they would have, they would have uh, written up a document that helped to, that, that said the purpose of government is to protect individual rights. But then you're sort of already importing your knowledge of what the proper role of government is into that thought experiment. And the thought experiment itself isn't really doing any of the work. Um, it's really important that, uh, and this is a point that Ankar Gatte has stressed in uh, work that he's written on this issue. There's an essay of his in uh, the Foundations of a Free Society book, which is the third volume of the Ayn Rand Studies Philosophical, Ayn Rand Society Philosophical Studies. It's an essay about the philosopher Robert Nozick. And Nozick had a kind of ver version of a social contract theory. Right. The reason that Nozick had this theory was because he was concerned with answering the anarchists who said, you couldn't have a government that functioned on the basis of consent of the governed if government really had a monopoly on force because then what, what happens if people don't agree? This is something we've already talked about. Yeah. And so Nozick tries to come up with a, a, kind of an imaginary story. Well, government could have been sent, set up in a way that violated nobody's uh, consent if the parties had agreed to such and such principles and if the people who didn't agree could go out and start a different country somewhere else and uh, if it's a very elaborate setup that he has but Ankar's basic response is it doesn't matter really the historical question of whether the the very first government could have been uh, done in a way that uh, that uh, viol that violated nobody's rights that used no force whatsoever because the whole history of mankind has been force. We live in a in a in an ocean of initiated force, and the first people who carve out uh, an island of freedom in that ocean of force, uh, even though the original governments that they're carving it out from weren't founded on anything like consent of the governed. That initial act of carving it out and extracting force from society is, is, is a justified thing to do, even if the government they first establish in the course of doing so doesn't perfectly protect people's rights. The, the point is the better and better governments get, uh, the better it becomes. Government is an achievement. A government that protects individual rights is a historical achievement. It's something that we've only figured out how to do very recently. And so thinking about the distant historical past of what might or might not have happened in the historical past when people were primitive savages and had no concept of rights is basically totally irrelevant to uh, political philosophy. And I think that's a good summary of what's wrong-headed about social contract thinking. I mean, yeah. social contract thinkers are sort of coming from the right place, but they're doing it using a, a really bizarre historical it, methodology. Yeah, is the idea that they're trying to answer this question of what gives legitimate authority to government and they're, and they're trying to say, well, it has to be some sort of contract that people all agree to. And, and what Ayn Rand points out is it's that that's the wrong way to think about it. And, and, and as we discussed, the, the, what gives government legitimate authority is only if it's, 
enacted on the basis of a very particular type of moral principle or, or a very particular moral principle, the protection of individual rights. That's the only thing that can give government legitimate authority wherever you're starting from. And on top of that, you can't really make sense of what's important about contracts unless you already have a government that is defining what makes for a proper contract uh, and then is in the position to enforce those proper contracts. And that gets back to the point about how governments are needed in the first place to define and sanction the boundaries of our freedom, including what counts as property and what counts as consent and what counts as a contract is one example of that. And so you can't use contracts to make sense of the basis of government when you need government to make sense of the basis of contracts. Yeah, so I mean, just a quick follow up here from Ray asking what was the ratification of the Constitution, in essence, a kind of social contract? Um, I mean, you, you can call it that if you want. It's not the kind of thing that the political philosophers had in mind when they were talking about a social contract. I mean, I do think that that is one expression uh, among many of the consent of the governed, of the ratification process, insofar as the different individual states. The states were basically representing the, the people in those states and their representatives were voting uh, to, to ratify the constitution. And so, uh, you, I mean, you would want each state to only join the union based on that kind of consent. I think if you want your, your, your society to function effectively, if a particular state didn't want to join the union in the first place, they should have been their own government and that would have been fine. Uh, so it's, I think it's an expression of consent of the governed in, in a proper way, but not in a kind of majority rule kind of way. Um, we have another just point of, um, reference. So the, the, the person Ian is asking where, if you could repeat where the essay is that Ankar wrote that you talked about, it's. Yeah, it's in, it's in the Ayn Rand Society Philosophical Studies, Volume 3, which is called Foundations of a Free Society that's edited by Greg Salmieri and, and Robert Mayhew. So look all that up on Amazon and, and you'll get it in two days. And there's a lot of other good stuff in that same book about the more general issue of uh, why government is justified and why it's a necessary positive good, not just a necessary evil, what's wrong with various anarchist criticisms of the idea of a government limited to the protection of individual rights. There's a number of chapters on that, which I think uh, inform uh, some of the things that we've been talking about today. People will be interested to learn more in that book. So we have two questions that are related. One of them was in the chat, one of them is in the Q&A. The, the preferences, if you put them in the Q&A, we can see them more easily. But um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read both of these, and, and then I'm going to talk about how, why I think they're related. So Ray in the, in the chat is saying, is asking about the status of voting and why, why voting in particular as a means of making decisions in politics? You know, is it merely one of practicality? There could be other means. You have a lottery, athletic competition, scholarly exam, reading animal innards. You know, why is majority votes uh, the, uh, the, uh, a proper method of making political decisions? And I think, as, I think there's a related question from John in the Q&A module, given the failure of Athens um, generations of philosophers have yearned for an enlightened despot. And then there's the idea of an epistocracy, only the most knowledgeable voters may vote. So again, the question is, uh, has to do with universal suffrage. Uh, why is that? Why is, it, why is it that every individual, you know, every adult's rational individual has the right, has the right to vote in a thing? And I, uh, 
So Greg Salmieri, we've talked about this, the book, uh, New Textbook of Americanism. Greg has an article in there about voting. Um, it's called On the Role of Voting in the American System of Government. I think he gives a good explanation of that point, which if you recall it, you can recount that or I can uh, summarize it if you. It's, do you, do you recall the point or should I just go ahead? I'm not sure which point from that essay you're, you're well, thinking of. So it, the, one, of the things, one of the things he explains is part of what the founders were, um, were explaining when, they, when we talk about um, uh, the, the, it's the idea that, that, no, that no individual has any kind of natural authority over other individuals. There is no divine right of kings. You know, there isn't somebody who's born with some kind of authority to rule over other people. And that, that's the respect in which we're all, you know, we, we all have equal rights. Uh, we all equally have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And, that, and government is, is um, formed to protect our rights equally and where there's equality before the law. And this is part, so uh, one of the, I thought it was interesting, um, there's, Greg has an explanation of, of why that sort of almost necessarily implies that a system where, uh, of, a system of voting where people, every individual, no matter whether they're enlightened or knowledgeable or, or what, um, they have equally the right to participate in the decisions that need to be made in the yeah, now I'm remembering which part you're talking about. And, and I think the key connection there is the, po the point that Greg, I think, actually quotes from Madison to this effect that, look, if you're, yeah. going to be, if, if you're going to be governed by a government, if you're going to be affected by its laws, uh, you should have a say, at least some say, in how they are administered and how they're set up. And that's because of the point that uh, none of us is, by nature, the ruler of another. If some of us simply didn't have any say whatsoever in, in the, the very laws that were affecting us, then somebody would be the, the one who is more naturally in charge than the others would be. Now, of course, even this point has its limits and you have to set standards for who's an eligible voter. And, and this is something that Ayn Rand herself talks about in that essay, uh, Representation Without Authorization. She says, you know, the reason the fundamental principle behind representative government is that man is a rational animal and needs to be able to govern his own life needs to have some say in the laws affecting him. Well, if you're a child, for instance, who's like 10 years old and who has, whose rational faculty has not been fully developed, then, uh, then you've not yet become a fully rational animal. So that principle doesn't apply and, and your rights have to be, your parents have to be the custodians or the guardians of your rights until you reach AIDS at the age of uh, majority. And likewise, if you're uh, severely uh, mentally deficient and you can talk about other cases like, you know, someone probably, I, I mean, I would argue at least that rights, voting rights should be restricted to citizens, not to not just to anyone who comes to the country. And that has, I think, to do with questions about national security, uh, because you can't just have uh, the enemy uh, army invade by sending its voters to vote their leader into, into power. There needs to be a process by which somebody can become a citizen and prove themselves. And that's separate from the question of immigration, of course. But um, so yeah, you have to have standards uh, of, of which people can be equal citizens, but uh, I don't see any reason that's ever been given in history for why those standards should be based on race or sex or, or uh, political ideology or anything like that. Um, uh, that's a much longer conversation, but yeah. 
So I think we have time for one final question. And I, I, uh, I think since we started with the concept of democracy, why don't we end on this question asking about whether we should be fighting for the concept of democracy. Um, it's a question from Nelson in the Q&A module. Is it, is it definition by non-essentials when we describe our government system as a democracy versus a constitutional republic? Um, in effect, what should we do about that? Should we discourage the use of democracy? Should we try to clarify it like we did today? What's, what's the answer? I think it's a really good question. And I, I think part of this question is also answered well in that essay by Greg Salmieri on the role of voting in, Amer in the American system of government. And I, if I recall, the way he puts it is that when you conceive of the fundamental question in political philosophy as to whether we should have a democracy or not, you're thinking that the fundamental question is who will be uh, in charge of the government? Who will govern? Yeah, or how but will the, decisions get made? Or how will decisions get made? When in fact, the fundamental question is what should the government do? And then the it's a secondary question of who should do it. Uh, because obviously your purpose is going to set, uh, every, set everything else. Uh, who will be best at protecting rights? That's a question you can only answer if you already know what the who is going to do, in effect. So, um, so, so, so in other words, yes, it is a definition by non-essentials. It is. And even if you, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's thinking in non-essentials to think that the question of should we be a democracy or not is the fundamental question. If you still want to have a name for a system where the majority rules, uh, in an unlimited way. I don't see a problem with calling that democracy. But then, uh, first of all, I'll say democracy is bad. And second of all, I'll say we shouldn't probably use the other meaning of the term democracy where we're talking about democracy means voting plus rights protection, because that does obscure the fundamental issue, which is, does the government actually dedicate itself to the protection of individual rights? And it makes it much too easy for people to say, oh, you believe in democracy? Well, well then we should have majority rule, which is exactly what today's socialists are doing. Okay, well, I think uh, that basically brings us to our time here, so. Yeah, and I have a few things to share with people to wrap things up. First of all, just a, a few resources uh, uh, concerning sources we talked about today. We talked about Ayn Rand's essay, The Nature of Government, where I think she has the clearest things to say about the nature and the need for consent of government, uh, consent of the governed. That's available on ARI's website, Nature of Government. Uh, we can go to courses.ainrand.org to find more. We also mentioned Jonathan Honig's very useful book, A New Textbook of Americanism, where you can find two of the things that we talked about today. The first of these is that workshop on ethics and politics, where Ayn Rand talks more about her understanding of the concept of the consent of the governed in the Objectivist Workshop on Ethics and Politics. That book also has Greg Salmieri's essay on the role of voting in the American system of government. You can also find that essay online on our website at newideal.einrand.org. Finally, we talked about Ayn Rand's essay, Representation Without Authorization. That's available in her book, The Voice of Reason. That's where she says more about what the right to vote really means, how it derives from other rights, how that relates to representative government and what representative government is not. Uh, also like to share with everyone 
an announcement about a major event that we're hosting at the end of the week. This is our online Ayn Rand Conference USA happening virtually this year. Uh, the theme of the conference is actually Ayn Rand and the revival of the Enlightenment, which is closely connected to the topic that we've been discussing today, consent of the governed. Consent of the governed is an Enlightenment concept. It comes out of the era when the Declaration of Independence was written, and there will be a number of talks on political philosophy topics related to what we talked about today. Uh, one of them, actually, by uh, our Chief Philosophy Officer, Ankar Gatte, will be the first of them, the Enlightenment and the Foundations of Liberty and Progress. And we're excited to announce that this first lecture in the conference will actually be available for free to anybody who wants to watch it live. Just go to Ayn Rand Institute's YouTube channel. That's Friday at 6 p.m. You'll then be given more information about how to register for the rest of the conference if you like what you see at that first lecture. Uh, I'll also mention that Greg Salmieri is giving a talk on, I think the I think it's something like the concept of extracting force from society, which relates to some of the things that we talked about today in relation to social contract theory and uh, uh, why anarchism is a is a improper alternative to an, uh, the positive conception of government. If you liked this podcast today, please send us an email to newideal.einrand.org. If you'd like to make a comment about today's episode or suggest a future episode, we don't respond to all these emails, but we do read them all and we do respond to many. And we do uh, often, or sometimes at least, do uh, topics of podcasts suggested by our viewers. So that's all I had for today. Uh, thanks, Keith. And thanks, everyone, for watching on this election day. 2020. I hope everyone has had a chance to vote on the issues that they think are important and that you've made your decisions carefully and rationally to express the consent of the government today. Thanks, everyone. Talk to you next week. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.